Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Jessica Alexander. Her book, Chasing Chaos, is just out from Broadway, and it is about her frontline perspective doing humanitarian aid at various hotspots around the world. And I'm delighted to talk to you today, Jessica. Great to talk to you, too. Let's start by talking about what you were doing before you got into the humanitarian aid world and what prompted you to, to do this. Well, in college, I had been working in some social services work and internships at, you know, the child care center as part of the Department of Health and Human Services. So I had an interest in social services. But when I graduated college, I went right into the private sector, actually. And I was doing marketing. And then my mom passed away. And that really prompted me to reevaluate the course of things. And I quit my job without another one in the wings, which was a blasphemous move for a girl who graduated from Penn and then decided to just really take some time off and travel a bit and and see where I I wanted to to work. What drew you to humanitarian aid as the profession that you would wind up in? A few things. I was drawn to the mission of alleviating suffering in times of crisis, but also I was allured by a desire to travel and have some really interesting cultural experiences abroad. So it was the combination of wanting to work in a meaningful profession, but I was attracted to the lifestyle as well. And where was the first place you went? I went to Rwanda in 2003 as an intern. So I was just there for a summer, basically. And this was roughly 10 years after the genocide there. Correct. It was it was nine years later. So. And, and what was your role? I was just an intern, so I was doing um, everything from rewriting reports from asylum seekers who wanted to be relocated to other, either to Rwanda or other countries, and interviewing people as well on their refugee status determination interviews. That internship, you write about it, and some of the difficulties of your first posting abroad, but Clearly, it was not so difficult that you didn't want to jump right back into it in another look. No, and in fact, it wasn't, it was difficult in the first days. I mean, I had to find housing, and that was overwhelming for a 25 year old who hadn't been to this country before and didn't really know anyone. But that was really the hardest part. I found the work to be really rewarding. I found the people who I met there to be incredibly inspiring, and I really wanted to continue doing this after that experience. So after that, you ended up doing two tours in in different parts of Darfur. So I, um, after I graduated from my master's program, I went to Darfur in a place called Zalinji, and then also in a place called in North Darfur called El Fasher. So yeah, that's where I was you know, unlike in Rwanda, which was nine years post-conflict, I was there during the height of the conflict, working in two internally displaced people's camps. And given a lot of responsibility right off the bat, it Mm. sounds like. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems with aid work, and especially what are called hardship posts, is staff turnover tends to be high. And, you know, I I also have a lot of turnover myself in my career, but at that point I was sort of thrown into a position 
managing a camp that I really didn't expect to be, to be at that level at that point in my career. I was certainly over my head. Initially, I found my feet, but it was all thanks to my local, the local staff who were working with me and also the community members who were in the camp with whom I became close. And they were the ones who were identifying the issues and the problems in the camp, which I then relayed to the aid community. As you write about these experiences, I mean, certainly the day-to-day accomplishments that you pulled off are a big part of the story. Equally important is the emotional journey Mm. that you were going through. And you write about, for example, how maintaining personal stability became a real challenge, Mm. not just for you, but for for all the Westerners who had come out to to do this. You underestimate sometimes from from afar how challenging it can be being so isolated at times, working in extremely challenging situations where sometimes there's no right answer, where telecommunications are very limited so you don't have the opportunity to talk to people that you want to just download what's going on to. And that can start to erode your, you know, your sense of stability. And again, you know, this is a transient lifestyle and so we're constantly moving. So that also can be quite grading on having any sense of permanence somewhere and building roots and doing the things that you're supposed to be doing in your late 20s and early 30s. Certainly establishing or maintaining a relationship becomes extremely difficult under those circumstances. Absolutely. People do it. It's not impossible. And I've seen a lot of people have successful relationships, but it's really challenging. I said telecommunications is very limited a lot of the times. And then sometimes you might be upset at your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you're like, but they're in a country at the verge of the civil war. Should I really be complaining about this right now? And so those kind of normal day-to-day annoyances tend to go get brushed under the carpet sometimes and so it, it just can be a challenging environment to maintain a relationship. You talk about how later in your career you had come back to America and you were settled here for a while and then you got a posting to Haiti mm. after the earthquake mm. and you were in the middle of a relationship here in New York Yeah, and you thought that you'd be like okay oh, I can go do this and maintain the relationship in New York but there was something that he said to you when you were back on a weekend and you you were like oh it's our one year anniversary it's like no we haven't been doing this for a year yeah exactly in my mind it it was really just six months that we had been living in the same place and six months that i had been in haiti and i added those together and was like well we're together for a year and he yeah we were living in such different circumstances that we really had to find our way again once i was back And getting back can be a real issue sometimes. You Mm. talk about, not on this particular trip, but before, uh, when you were coming back from Darfur and uh, Sri Lanka, how it was really hard for you to adjust to being back in the United States after those postings. Things had been difficult starting from when I was there. You know, I was already dealing with my own mental frailty, dealing with some of the, the challenges that I was facing on a day-to-day basis there. And so when I got home, it was one, dealing with those, just being confronted with this baggage of, okay, how do I manage what I just experienced? But then also doing that on the backdrop of these very fancy engagement parties and places that I was supposed to go to and having a really hard time explaining to my friends just what I was going through. And it was quite isolating to come back because my friends all cared and they were 
loving and accepting, but it was really, it's sometimes really difficult to articulate just what those places are like. And it wasn't like I had stories that I could rattle off and tell them that were going to be entertaining and interesting. It took me a long time to process what I had gone through as well. And just not even what I had gone through, just what I was seeing others go through. And it just takes a toll on you when you see those kinds of challenges day to day and your feeling of not having been able to do much about it. And you write about how the therapists that you tried talking to here in the East Coast, yeah, they just didn't really get it. Yeah. And how much more difficult it must be out in the field where there really aren't any mental health resources at all. Right. I've since found great therapists (laughs) who do get it, and there are those happen to be ones that it wasn't really appropriate and didn't meet my needs at the time. But yeah, and I think also aid agencies are recognizing the toll that this takes on aid workers more and more and that there can be some real psychosocial issues that we go through as staff that we tend to just overlook because we are considered, first and foremost, is the people that were that are affected by this crisis. And I don't mean to overstate the suffering that I went through or that we go through. It's just sort of a part of the job. They're experiencing way more than than anything that we can even relate to. As I said before, it does start to erode your stability and, and sanity a bit. But agencies are aware of this, and they are putting more resources towards mental health for aid workers because burnout is a real issue. People are working 100-hour weeks back to back to back to back and without a break on, on these dilemmas that don't really, as I said, have clear-cut, neat answers. So you never really feel like you've changed anything necessarily. Sometimes you can. And you describe how early in your career, you know, you would see veterans who had burned out on this and Mm. being rude or outright abusive to the locals. And you talk about the ways in which the workers try to rationalize that behavior as you're describing how those hundred hour weeks trying to do it, you know, good for these people here. And, you know, maybe it's okay if we lose it a little bit here and we're not right. like total perfect, saints. Total saints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, in any office environment, if you're working under a stressful situation, you, you can be rude to your staff and your fellow coworkers. I think that happens here. That happens anywhere. You know, if you're under the gun and, and there's just stress all around you. One of the, the problems is that we do work under a different set of rules sometimes and we can, let the stress get to us and sometimes do act out in ways that we wouldn't necessarily do so here. One of the different sets of rules that you are operating under, and I was fascinated by this in in the second half of the book, you talk about how in terms of measuring the effectiveness of what you do, Mm. you're often, beholden is the wrong word, but the expectations of the people who are giving you the money or giving you the goods often take a sort of short-term precedence over whether that material or that aid is actually doing any good at yeah. ground zero. This is an issue that aid workers are constantly faced with, which is that we're on short-term funding cycles, we're on short-term delivery cycles. And like an aid, humanitarian aid is meant to come in after a disaster and help immediately. And that's what we're tasked with or what we've built expertise in. But more and more we're being asked to do 
longer things. So it's not about just saving a life for today, but what about six months from now? So, okay, they may have a tent to sleep under, they may have water now, they may be fed, but reconstruction and the longer term development that needs to happen so that people are more resilient to shocks later so that they can build a livelihood and protect their families the next time. We sometimes work in ways that are more short-sighted and we need to take a longer term view and approach, but sometimes we're not funded to do that. Our funding cycles typically go for one year, whereas development cycles go for five years, but that sort of in-between time there's a gap there, and that's a really critical time to be able to take it from emergency to recovery. And in the meantime, you've got a bunch of people who are like, well, we rounded up a bunch of T-shirts. We rounded up a bunch of canned goods. Yeah. What are you doing with that? <laughs> well, I was just talking yeah, about sure. more institutional donations, Absolutely. but there's, yeah, there's certainly a lot of really well-intentioned people back home who do, you know, a fundraiser in their basement, and they send stuff from their medical supply cabinet thinking that they're doing good, when, in fact, a lot of these items don't really have a place in some of these countries. And so it takes a lot of time, resource, capacity to dispose of them. Imagine you have life-saving things that need to come through these ports, which are, by the way, overwhelmed because a lot of them are destroyed and you have people coming in, etc. And then you have a bunch of t-shirts that are coming in. And that's based on the assumption that people need t-shirts when that's not really the priority right then and there. And some guy from an agency has to take those on a truck and there's limited transportation opportunities, put them in a warehouse, there's limited space in the warehouse, you need to get life-saving materials in there, and then distribute them where? I mean, you only may have a couple hundred t-shirts, and thank you, but that's not really that useful right now. The other thing with giving out these kinds of gifts in kind is a lot of times these aren't what people need or they don't want, and there are vendors there that are selling them, and what you're doing when you're just giving out these kind of free things is you're putting those people out of business, undermining the local market at a time when it really needs to actually be supported. What I would say is if you want to do those kind of things, do a fundraiser, but then give money to an agency that is working locally, that knows the local needs, knows the best way to source these materials so that they can help build the capacity of the market again, and can do it more quickly and efficiently than sending it from the middle of Iowa down to Africa or Haiti or wherever. And that's just the cases where people are sending stuff. You write about, particularly in your Haiti experiences, mm -hmm. the frustrations of what you call hug vacations. Right. Again, perfectly well-intentioned people yeah. who, are, who are there to do good, but who are also in the way. I think before anyone goes to a place like Haiti, let's just take Haiti because it's so close to the U.S. that it was inundated with people coming down on these one-week tourism trips, really, and they were going through camps and taking photos and playing frisbee with the kids. What I would say is before you go on one of these trips, think about whether or not you're going to be making a valuable contribution. Do you have a skill to offer? Are you going to be doing perhaps manual labor that a local person could be doing for a job? What are you going to be actually contributing? It did create a lot of confusion and tension in some of these places because to people, to local people, we all look the same. You know, whether we're part of the aid system or not or outside of it because we're on a volunteer trip to paint a school, 
people are just sick of Westerners just traipsing through their camps. I mean, imagine if you lost everything, if you lost your family, if you lost your house, your livelihood. Would you want people from another country just walking around and taking pictures of your suffering? And I think these trips encourage that kind of behavior. Some of them are on their websites. They go to orphanages and they claim to, to make these lifelong bonds. You'll make lifelong bonds with children in these orphanages. Now just think about from the perspective of these children with every week a new set of Americans walking through their orphanage making lifelong bonds with them and how disruptive that can be just socially and psychologically. So I really think that before people go they should consider what contribution their actions are going to make and why they're going. Is it for them or is it really for the people there? You mentioned imagining what it would be like if, if something like that had happened in, in our home. And since Haiti, you've largely worked here in the yeah, States. Yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering, were you here for Hurricane Sandy? And as someone who has seen a lot of yeah. suffering around the world, what was your experience of Sandy? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I actually wasn't here, so I can't speak to what I was experiencing. But it was striking how similar some of the issues that happened afterwards were to the areas that I work for. And the same in, after Katrina as well, where the stadium became this refugee camp and there were reports of rape that were going on there and lack of resources, et cetera. And I remember I was sitting in Darfur actually when that happened thinking, wow, this is the first time Americans are dealing with some of these issues that we're dealing with all the time. Plastic sheeting, where are people going to go to the bathroom? You know, these basic things that you need to figure out for thousands of people. But in Sandy in particular, one of the similarities, which was quite interesting, was people's need for communication, especially after the blackout. You would see hordes of people walk from downtown, walking uptown so that they could get a cell phone signal. And sometimes we as humanitarians forget just how important information is at the time of the crisis. We're so consumed with getting water there, getting food there, getting, the, but just information and communication and being able to communicate with your family and your loved ones and find out if people are okay and see what's going on in the news. I mean, that's really important. And so I was struck by just places where people would go to just charge their phones so that they could get communications. The other things that were similar were if you go to Red Hook now, people are still out of homes. The The reconstruction hasn't even started in some of these places. This is the richest country. This has FEMA. We have tons of resources. It's very easy to point the finger and say, oh, these backwards countries, they can't get it together to rebuild fast enough. But you see, it takes a lot of time. And it's not just the bricks and mortar of rebuilding and putting a house together. These are land issues. These are issues that fall within the remit of the government that have to be sorted out. They're very thorny issues. At least in Haiti, for example, it wasn't just about rebuilding a house. That's easy enough. Um, the materials were there. The experts were there. It was these land issues, which were the real problem. Whose land is it? Is it the renters? Is it the landlords? Five people show up with a deed claiming that they own the land. And so sorting through these things was the real challenge and the real holdup. The, the other thing, too, that an interesting little vignette that happened after Sandy, which speaks to how aid is changing a bit, is, you know, we need to put people at the, at the center of our responses, asking them, what do you need? What do you want? Instead of assuming what the needs are. So like the t-shirts example. From the aid community, we often give things that end up in the markets and being and, and are being sold. 
So there was a community I know that was predominantly Jewish and a relief organization was handing out ham sandwiches, not knowing just like this was, you know, we're feeding people and, and okay, nutritional needs met, done. And it wasn't until they started asking people, no, we don't actually eat this, that they were like, oh, right. And so they changed it. But the same goes in some of the places that I've worked, that some of the things that we hand out are not relevant or appropriate for the places that... So for example, we may be handing out corn oil as part of a food package, but people there eat and cook with peanut oil. And so again, thinking that, okay, we've met the nutritional needs, X number of people have gotten this much oil to cook with, but people aren't actually using it. It has no use there. So it's about asking people and going back and saying, are you using these things? What is happening with it? And sometimes at the height of an emergency, you don't have time for that. And certainly at the beginning point, you may not do that. But after a while, it's really about making sure that we're accountable to the end user, which is the person that you're trying to help, not the donor who's funding it. Now, at the very end, you talk about how this book was written over several years in several countries. Yeah. And I'm curious as to the point at which, that initial point where you decided, I need to start telling these stories more than just to like the people that I'm with talking about this. I need to set this down. I never really thought that this book would, would actually materialize. I, it was a fun little project that I was working on on my computer and also is sending emails home that I found that people were really interested in the places that I was working and there I would get a ton of questions from people. And so that sort of started my thinking, okay, well maybe there there could be a book out of this. But I never felt like my experiences are that unique. And they're not. I mean I the point of this book is like I'm a very typical aid worker, I think. I mean some people have careers that take different trajectories, but I think the issues that I raise are very common to at least my friends and colleagues that I've met in the field. I started teaching last semester, or last year, sorry, and found that a lot of my students were, there weren't really references out there that were approachable in terms of a, explaining it in a non-academic way, some of the things that we face. And so that also really led me to want to write this, that there's a a desire for a voice of this is what it's like because we make a lot of assumptions and have some preconceived ideas about who aid workers are that we're all saints or we all have dreadlocks and we're all hippies going out there and saving the world when in fact that's not really the case we're just normal people like anyone else but we have this very adventurous career but it's it's quite rewarding and interesting but frustrating and challenging as well at this point in your career you are primarily working here in New York, but you still get out for like short. Um, to, but the temptation is still there to, to go out and go out into the field for a long tour? Or? At some point, you have to weigh your personal commitments and your professional commitments. I mean, in any career, right? And in this one, it just means finding where you can be effective because you are personally satisfied as well. And I found that just keep going around the world and doing these stints, I wasn't, I was neglecting my personal life. And, and that just, those realities just became more important to me, or those desires became more important to me. That's not to say that I'm done with the field. And, you know, as I say in my book, you never really clock out of the field. I mean, I, I think 
I found the work that I do here to be rewarding. I really enjoy teaching. I really enjoy working on policy issues at a global level, which is what I'm doing now. But who knows? I mean, I think that may be chasing chaos 2.0 <laughs> of what, what will be next. Well, we will see how that plays out. I have been talking with Jessica Alexander about Chasing Chaos. It's her memoir of her experiences as a humanitarian aid worker around the world and here in New York City. It's just out from Broadway, and I hope you'll take a look for it. I'm Ron Hogan, and you've been listening to the Life Stories podcast. If you're not subscribed to this on iTunes, you can get subscribed to it on iTunes. And when you do, I hope that you will rate it and review it and tell folks to listen to it as well. Join us again for another episode soon, and thank you for listening. Take care.